a quick preamble for today's episode. It was our first time trying out uh, NVIDIA Broadcast, which is a great piece of software uh, for reducing noise in uh, audio recordings. Uh, But we turned on the settings a little too strong, and so the result kind of came out as a little digitized. So apologies for that. Uh, We're working to smooth out the uh, changes in upcoming episodes. Thank you. The English language owes a massive debt to William Shakespeare. Because of that, Anyone who speaks English, especially as their first and primary language, also owes a debt to the man from Stratford-upon-Avon. Because of that, the English-speaking world winds up owing quite a bit to the words left behind by the bard. Disconnecting language from culture is nearly impossible because language is the primary vehicle by which culture is transmitted. Similarly, disconnecting culture from all the other realms of human invention, achievement, and history is likewise not possible. Humans as social, cultural animals means that our desires, our ambitions, and goals, and how we go about reaching them, are based in this long thread of connection upon our language. Reaching all the way back to my Sociology 101 days, there's even the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis, which states that our entire understanding of the world may be shaped by our language. How does it shape your mind to have a word like schadenfreude as part of your basic vocabulary? Not to mention any of German's other polysyllabic sentences within a single word— Is it really unexpected that the German people have a stereotypical reputation for precision, over-complexity, and efficiency all at once, when they can jam-pack an entire sentence's worth of English meaning into one very long word? Japanese, I don't think anyone would be surprised to learn, has specific honorific speech, called keigo, reserved for use in specific social situations. But maybe more surprising is that there are actually three separate subcategories of honorific speech, polite, honorific, and humble styles. Is it possible that, with a set of language so focused on social hierarchy and grouping, that it may change how Japanese speakers understand social groups compared to those who speak other languages that don't have those focuses? There are even languages which don't use directions like left and right at all, but always follow cardinal directions for everything. Depending on which way you're facing, the same hand could be either your north hand or your south hand. People raised in those languages often have incredible senses of direction because, well, it'd be hard not to need that sense of direction to carry on a simple conversation or to tell a story. Every language has its own unique inertia, built up over hundreds of years, accumulated from wars and natural disasters, diseases and migrations, and yes, from poets and playwrights. Language probably doesn't shape what we think, but it could definitely give help and structure to how we do that thinking, and how we think is often expressed in our culture. So what happens when one person, one poet, has such an oversized influence on a language and the culture that results from it? Well, it's quite easy to trace all the things connected to that language and culture back to that individual. And so it is with William Shakespeare. Look hard enough and it can seem like everything has Shakespeare's fingerprints on it. In Stephen March's book, How Shakespeare Changed Everything, March finds those fingerprints everywhere he looks. In American race relations, in teenagerhood, in fashion, even in ecology. Though some of the chapters of this book may stretch a bit, in their reach to slot Shakespeare directly into our modern world, the underlying fact can't be denied. We live in a culture whose genetic makeup is laced with Shakespearean DNA. So today we're going to take a look at some of the biggest places where Shakespeare's mark can be seen, and a few more hidden ones as well. And maybe, just maybe, we'll pay off a bit of that debt that we owe to William Shakespeare. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar. 
An hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Bix. Yes, we are. And today we are, as Aiden very eloquently uh, put it, we are talking about Shakespeare's influence. Um, specifically, I think more than anything, the the language influence. I mean, yeah. it's hard for uh, a conversation about Shakespeare's influence to take place without a hefty focus on on the language. The language because that's what he that was his medium. That was his it, medium. If we were talking about music, we might be talking about Mozart or something else. But here we are. But exactly. here we are. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a good conversation. It's actually the. Uh, one of the episodes that I've been looking most forward to um, ever since we sat on a pub patio back when you could sit on a pub patio. Remember those days, Aiden? Oh, glorious as they were, yes. <laughs> and and came up with a list of episodes that we wanted to do for this podcast. So uh, so yeah, Aiden, I, I mean, you, you talked about this book, How Shakespeare Changed Everything. Um, which I haven't read entirely. I got about halfway yeah. through. Um, it's a short you, read, Lindsay. You really should have. <laughs> it's been a busy couple it's, lifetimes it's, this week. It, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, why don't you give us a, a rundown of of what this book is? Because it kind of structures, it, you know, as as we do, <laughs> we take other people's thoughts and ideas and kind of distill them into into our podcast. So this book is going to be kind of um yeah our forming guide. the the guide the, yeah the, the... the general layabout that we're going on yeah. down down this road today um i think as i mentioned in, in my opening essay though uh the book does uh go quite into extremes to really like nail down connections between shakespeare's influence and and on these various topics um but there are some that are much more clear like the language one right uh he talks a little bit about the canon and and so forth i think that's one of our areas that we're going to focus on a little more, but there's, there's some really interesting niche ones that he, he, he found and discovered, including, uh, the one about the birds. And I can't remember the name of the bird right now, of course. Uh, but they were introduced to North America and they became a pest, uh, (laughs) all because they were mentioned one time in a Shakespearean play. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, niche cool ones like that. Um, but I think, the first topic that we're going to get into is the language. Yeah. Um, Cause it's the one that I think everyone kind of has an understanding that yes, this is, this is something that, uh, that Shakespeare obviously had a big impact uh, in. And just to give you a, a sense at the highest level, um, Shakespeare's generally credited with coining or at least writing down for the first time. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, 1700 words, um, which is quite a wow. bit. Uh, especially because, uh, you know, the total vocabulary of the English language is only in like 200,000 or something No, no, like it's that. closer to a million. But now, yes. Now, now it is. Yes. But at the time, it was probably yeah. much smaller. So, yeah. So if he was, you know, coining about 1% of the words <laughs> for the first time, that's pretty impressive. When you consider that the average person probably had a vocabulary yeah. that was a fraction of, yeah. like Shakespeare's vocabulary is in the... 10, 15, 20,000 range or 25,000 maybe yeah. even, um, which is extraordinary. And it's one of the arguments that people use to say Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare because how could a Glover's son from Gloucestershire yes, learn all these Warwickshire yeah. or anywhere in the <laughs> West Country, how could they have, have been able to write all these words down? Um, to know that he is the originator or at least the first person to write down 1,700 words. And some of them... 
are words that we use every day. Oh, they're like we mentioned in our last episode, elbow, elbow and eyeballs. eyeballs. Yeah. There's, there's a whole, there's a whole slew of them. And actually there's a, there's a couple good links that we found and we'll, we'll link to them so you can, you can go through and read it at your own pace. Uh, but there, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tremendous, I, large list. <laughs> I love that uh, paragraph that somebody wrote where they're using all of the words or phrases that Shakespeare coined yes. to talk about how amazing it is that Shakespeare coined those yeah. words and phrases. So yeah, we'll link to that. It's yeah. definitely worth a, and, worth a and read. March had a, a great one because it's not just the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also invented a bunch of phrases that yeah. we, again, are, are in common usage all the time. Um, if you have been tongue-tied, if you are a tower of strength, if you're hoodwinked or in a pickle, <laughs> like the, the list, uh, there's a whole passage here. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll actually. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. From, yeah. it was from March's book. It was, oh, but really? it was somebody else wrote it. It wasn't oh. him who wrote it. It was, it was, you wrote the book, didn't you? I did. Please tell me you read the whole book. I did. Oh yeah. Sorry, Bernard Levin. There Sorry, I missed that key nice. point of him introducing that someone else. So, guys, I don't read the whole book, but what I do read, I I retain. <laughs> Very important. But yeah, yeah, there's there's a whole list here. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about you know he coined the words, mm-hmm. but he probably didn't invent all of them. Right. Uh, and same with the phrases. Again, yeah. it's it's not likely that he he did it all. Um. Chances are he was just writing it down for the first time. Right. Uh, there's there's a it's fairly well uh, recognized that he did not just coin words out of thin right. air. Uh, there are a few, quite a few that uh, he may have, especially the ones, his one of his favorite tricks, as every child who uh, is forced to read Shakespeare gradually learns, is that he just turned nouns into verbs and verbs into nouns. Mm-hmm. That was one of his favorite things. He turned everything into an adverb, <laughs> uh, which is one of my personal favorites. Um, you know, like he he had he had certain uh, techniques that he kind of used, and the fact was, as we talked about in our in previous episodes, um, the English language was pretty malleable at this stage. There it was, still is. I mean, well, that's, exactly. that's the thing. It's one of the things that the English language has really managed to to hold on to. And there's a, a fascinating documentary series that um, I've forced Aiden to watch um, more than once. Yeah, it's and uh, it is. It's it's um, it basically chronicles English from its its earliest origins through Beowulf, through Chaucer, through Shakespeare, all the way through to the dawn of the 21st century. And uh and talks about how England English, which is it's a weird thing to think about because England was such a conquering force in the in the the last millennium, right? The with the explorers that it sent out and the colonizing that it did um but when you think about it for most of england's and english's history it was a conquered language they Mm -hmm. were a conquered people um whether it was the anglo-saxons or the saxons i guess or whether it was the normans or whether it was the vikings the vikings All of those people who came into the English Isles and conquered them put their mark on the language. And English's great ability is to absorb those things and make it part of a new dialect or a new language. So that's why you don't see I, – I used to teach at a French immersion school. And the French immersion kids didn't carry around a thesaurus with them to class. They carried around a becherelle, right? It's one of the things that French French language kids learn to take with them. There is no such thing, as far as I know, as a thesaurus for the French language because there's one word that means one thing and that's it. Uh, March talks about this in his book about – I think it's it's a word for 
for like all the synonyms for a sex worker. Yeah. yeah. And it goes into all the shades of meaning. I mean, that's something that's so unique to English that you could have 10 or 12 or 15 different words that mean slightly different things that you can use in very different situations. So, I mean, this is the this is the sandbox that Shakespeare gets to play in. And of course he's going to take, I mean, whether he did it himself or the people of the time did it, they're taking great liberties with this language and, and creating words. There are a couple of words that March talks about that um, there, we don't know what they mean. Yes. Yes. And, which is so great. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, you can kind of guess what it means. I, one of them was like Ponzi or yeah. not Ponzi, but. Uh, yeah, he I, thought it was something to do with princes, maybe. Like, like he imagined Prince Charles being this description. Prinzy, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, Prinzy, yeah. something like that. And it's like, that's a word that Shakespeare uses in one of his plays. It's the only time the word appears. We don't know what it means. But it it suggests something to us. Because as English speakers, we kind of, this is what we do. We play yeah. with language. It's it's in the structure of the language itself. And I think that's, Aiden, the brilliance of your opening essay was in talking about how language allows that and how it it changes the way your brain works i think in a in a strange way so if you've grown up with a language that is this playful of course you're going to write playfully yeah right exactly and i uh, there was actually a really good quote i actually i loved it so much from the book that i I wanted to read it here it's it's talking about that um that playfulness and march says his meaning shakespeare's preternatural ability to match the sound of a word to its sense is his greatest strength I mean, it's one thing to make up a word like metamorphize. That just requires brilliance and education and open-mindedness. But glow, gnarled, or hognob, or gossip? The perfection of his invented words, rather than their quantity, is awe-inspiring. He invented traditional and eventful. How did people live without them? Isn't that amazing? And it's so true. It's like there's there's all these little worlds of meaning that that are exposed and created for the first time, mm-hmm. on paper at least, mm-hmm. in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. And... That's what I was talking about when I get to yeah. you know the the long lasting effects of Shakespeare. It's not just you know everybody. The fact that high school kids still have to read it today and see go to the performance at their local theater or anything like that. It's they use that, the word traditional. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's there's so much uh, that is just captured by Shakespeare and mm-hmm. was done by him first, and it's it's really quite incredible. And a lot of that's just owing to the scope of his work. He wrote so many plays. Mm-hmm. The two long poems, the sonnets. There's just there's such a breadth of of published work um, that even someone like Milton, you know, Paradise Lost was a huge work. He had some other poems, I think. I don't know Milton too well, actually, <laughs> but you know, all the other writers of his time had fairly small collected works. You know, Bacon didn't important write works, but very but important, but not nearly to the, yeah. the same breadth. So, I mean, maybe if uh, what's his name, the guy who got killed. Marlowe. Marlowe. If Marlowe had survived and he was also writing plays at the same time as Shakespeare, first of all, how much better would Shakespeare's plays have been if he had to compete against Marlowe right. to this day, right? It's like a Lennon-McCartney kind of I, competition yeah. thing. It would have been great. Um, but, you know, if Marlowe had kept writing and he'd pushed out 20 more plays, uh, maybe we would have seen those words duplicated or we could have seen brand new words that yeah. the coin well, never the thing, used, right? right? When you think about the, the works that... The works we have, it's remarkable that we have them. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of these works are lost to the to the ages? They're, you know, they were used to light pyres or, yeah. you know, whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's 
it's pretty astonishing when you think about 1700 brand new words that were introduced to the English language and they're words you use every day yeah. or almost every yeah, day. There's a lot you don't, but <laughs> of course. But the ones that you don't, I think that, that it still speaks to something kind of essential about the English language and about Shakespeare as a writer too. Yep. Absolutely. Why some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. The second uh, big topic that we want to discuss was um, his influence on the canon, and we kind of mentioned this, and it was also in my when you when you say the so. canon, you mean like the English I mean, literary English canon? literary canon, the, the not not something you shoot with. Well, of course Glenn not. But when when you say the canon, sometimes people like the Shakespearean canon. I'm like, well, yes, he influenced the Shakespearean canon because he he wrote, he wrote it. Wrote it. No. But no, you talk about the whole. Yes. Yeah. And so again, just to give a background, if you skipped our earlier discussion on this, these kind of topics, uh, Shakespeare wasn't necessarily a huge celebrity in his day. I mean, he was well known and everybody liked him, but his his coming into being as the English playwright and the English poet was really something that started at the end of the 17th, early 18th century, mm-hmm. um, where he was really canonized and turned into, yes, there's Shakespeare, the greatest English writer of all time. Right. And uh, that, that kind of understanding of his plays being the preeminent kind of drama dramaturgical works. Well, yeah, uh, centralized in, in the, in the English uh, literary history. Yeah. Um, and you get people like David Garrick who, you know, take those works and really embody something, something special about the way the 18th century approached Shakespeare. I think mm-hmm. that's um, because he wasn't popular in, he was popular in his own time. And then the Puritans made sure that no yeah, plays no were plays popular <laughs> in the middle part of the 17th century. Um, but then with the reopening of the theaters and, you know, all of that stuff, um, Shakespeare's plays fell out of fashion for a while, but when they did come back, it's like they never really left after that. You know, when you get into the the Victorian age, it was like, you know, of course, you know, Prince Albert was a fan. Dickens was a fan. Everybody was a fan of Shakespeare. Everybody either wanted to be Shakespeare or just lionized him to the point that it was – you know, he he really rose to to the position that he has today. And that, I think, is – all you know you can wind that back to the stuff that ben johnson writes in the 1623 Mm -hmm. folio edition right and trying to set those that um i guess planting the seeds of that with you know the great swan of avon and Mm -hmm. whatnot but uh it doesn't really happen you're right until 100 and 100 and some years after his death yeah uh, but since that point, yeah, like you said, he's he's really he's been stuck in there. He is he is probably the well easily the most recognizable uh, of all the major figures. Well, I mean, his, aren't his works the second most printed? That's what everyone behind says. The Bible? We've never looked that up. We should true. really do the research. But, but it's, I feel like it's good to be. It's quoted enough that I mean, it's what people think about, right? I mean, exactly. Shakespeare is is the collected works are have constantly been in print basically since the beginning. Yeah. And it's, I think that with that, uh, status comes a lot of, a lot of influence on 
what follows. I mean, they're just as a matter of course, uh, a five act structure even is it, with the, you know, like the, the stuff that again, we covered in kind of our introductory episode and yeah. that the teacher, hopefully that, uh, forced this on you in high school explained like, <laughs> you know, you have the, the tragedy, you have the turning point halfway through where just a mistake is made and they can never go back. You know, like yeah. there, there are some certain tropes and structures that, um, follow through. I mean, in modern Hollywood, it's more of a three act kind yeah. of breakdown but the the same kind of structure there of like an introductory uh here's you know a middle part where you're kind of leading towards the climax and then a, a final a finality and then a dating moth and it's not like shakespeare invented this stuff no. but again his works were were so popular that um it's almost like his stuff becomes a template right that yeah. everybody else even if you're not writing a play, you're still thinking about um, a Macbeth-type character. Yeah. When you're writing yeah. about a tragic hero or a, a flawed villain who yeah. who has this this fatal flaw, or um, you know, a, a, an introspective, brooding Hamlet. I mean, these are these are things that. The stories that people write after Shakespeare follow the same kind of beats, don't mm-hmm. they? And I think that that before Shakespeare, there certainly are plays that that come out and Marlowe wrote them. Um, you, you know, you can you can see the same things happening there. But it's just it's so hard to escape Shakespeare when you're when it's what forms the foundation of this study of the English language that we all have to take. We all have to go through. Yeah. And I think, uh, you mentioned characters. I think that's another kind of like subcategory of it is, you know, yeah, especially something like the star-crossed lovers. Again, Shakespeare didn't invent that, but you know, when you think of star-crossed lovers, you think of Romeo and Juliet and you don't think of Romeo, whatever, Giorgio and Julietta or whatever the original (laughs) Italian one was. I think it was Romeus, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, so like, it just he solidified it in such a way that uh, it's almost inescapable, especially in English, yeah. to not think of you're striking. Now you're getting close to Claudius territory with this character or Hamlet or Gertrude or, you know, like you can just pick them from from Hamlet and you, your characters are going to be pulling on these archetypes. And, and and with the historical characters that he writes, the Julius yeah. Caesars or the Kings, yeah. right? I mean, Richard III was not a terrible hunchbacked, horrible ogre. I mean, that's that's purely in our imagination. That's purely because of Shakespeare's characterization of it. And we talked about it in our episode on Richard III. But I mean, when people are altering paintings to make it look like he had a hunchback because Shakespeare wrote that he had a hunchback. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're altering history to match what someone wrote about history. And that's something that I don't think any other author can claim to have inspired. I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, are are people going around, you know, trying to make Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge into real life characters? I don't know. I don't think it has the same like, you know, as as, you know, prominent as Dickens is. It's certainly not to the same degree that that Shakespeare um, that that Shakespeare is. One and that's a great point, Lindsay. And and something that kind of ties in with that as well as the previous section about the language itself is that Shakespeare really uh, solidified blank verse as the de facto, you know, the iambic pentameter, mm. ten feet, you know, like the the structure of dramatic language. 
um, that, you know, <laughs> we just finished watching the West Wing. So, uh, you know, what's his name uh, is top of mind for me right now. Aaron Sorkin again. Uh, you know, he has characters speaking in iambic pentameter still to this day at times. Yeah. It's it's the, the like not everybody does it it's not no no no, no. do it but no but it as as a structure of like oh you want your characters to sound high and mighty and you want them to put on airs you're still going to use iambic pentameter well, you're going to consider the stressed syllables and you're going to, yeah. to think about um how you have these characters speak i think maybe even that is just you know giving um different I mean, it's good writing. It is good writing to have characters speak differently depending on their their social status or or whatever. I mean, um, you look at Great Expectations by Charles Dickens or Downton Abbey. I mean, they're not speaking in blank verse when they speak to one another, but there's certainly um, – I mean, it's it's reflecting – it's weird because it reflects <laughs> – it reflects the social strata. Yeah. But at the same time um, – it's it's not like what Shakespeare's doing does not replicate um, mo- like speech between average people. Yeah. Nobody was walking around Elizabethan England speaking in, you know, I ams and whatnot. Right? Yeah. Like maybe that, for a joke at court or something. Sure, like that. Yeah. But not re- like the, yeah. the whole Petrarchan sonnet format that became the Shakespearean sonnet under Shakespeare's hands um, <laughs> was not replicating speech, but it was attempting to do something that. Um, that we, is now something that's very common. You you expect your characters to speak like they should speak, depending mm-hmm. on who they are and what social status they have, and that that makes sense. And it says something. And you brought up the West Wing in the episode where the, the Supreme Court justice is writing in um, uh, whatever verse it was that that he was rhyming and everybody thought he was a doddering old fool. Well, that that says something interesting about that character in a way that I don't know. I'm getting away from the point that I was trying to make, but I think yeah. I think it's it it is a, a good point. Yeah, and your point, not mine. <laughs> no, yours was also uh, a very good one, but I I think it's I think one I think what we're kind of looping back around is uh the fact that because Shakespeare's plays have been continually performed yeah. and because they've continually been reassessed and reimagined and changed and right. altered and then reactionaried against back to the original you know like there's always Shakespeare has stayed current that whole time right. so that's therefore it becomes part of our continued understanding of of how english language works and and drama and in the written word generally right like you and i probably incorporate some shakespearean things that we don't even know of course uh when we do our own writing uh when you read other things you might think oh that's the he borrowed that from shakespeare i mean the the list of books with titles from shakespeare Mm -hmm. uh also in in march's book was you know it's quite evidence again you know it is just the fact that Shakespeare by being churned up over and over again every generation yeah. uh it's going to stay current and there's going to be more impetus to include it uh in future works and in in all those ways you know whether it's the language or how characters talk or um the themes or the archetypes that he created and that we draw upon now all these things kind of pull together to create a uh, a situation where he's very important to things that are being written today Mm-hmm. Which is quite something. I, I agree. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. 
It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury. Signifying? Nothing. Another obvious uh, Shakespearean influence, uh, and we talked about this again in many episodes, especially on the history ones, uh, the sense of English identity right. that is created through Shakespeare and upheld uh, is quite something. Uh, he really, you know, as we mentioned, he was lionized as the English poet, the mm-hmm. English, the bard. Uh, and that's had quite uh, a long lasting impact. I mean, yes, Henry V being filmed for during the war against the, the Nazis, you know, like all these things, he is, he is an integral part of English identity. And because England and the UK were a colonial power, it's also something that was, you know, foisted onto a lot of people around the world. Absolutely. Uh, including us here in Canada. Well, I think that's that when we talk about Shakespeare being, you know, continually performed and, and one of the most printed books or, or sets of works in the world, it's, it's purely because of the uh, export power of English culture, <laughs> yeah. or British culture um, in its colonial spread. I mean, and it's, it's hard to get away from that um, because Shakespeare almost comes to stand in for England in a lot of cases, yeah. right? So if you are in India or if you are in Canada or if you are Kansas. in Kansas, our Kansas, our Kansas, um, you know, it's you take English literature, you study Shakespeare. It's there's the other the other uh, authors on that the in the literary canon that you might study can change year to year. You might study uh, Dickens. You might study uh, could be anybody. Chinua Achebe could be uh, Chaucer. It could be uh, what's her name, Mrs. Dalloway. Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf. You know, like, like there's yeah. so many people that it, that you can slot in, but you're always going to study Shakespeare. Yeah. And I think that that um, is, I I said it already. He stands in for English culture, yeah. and that and it's a particular kind of English culture. I I wanted to bring this up in a previous point, and and we got off on a different tangent, <laughs> we do but tangents, yeah. but it's it's interesting that um, that Shakespeare began as low culture and is now this symbol of the highest of high cultures, and he's almost been frozen that way since the Victorians or maybe a little bit earlier in the, in the 18th century, because it's, he went from being, and March talks about it in, in his book about in the chapter, all about how Shakespeare revolutionized sex, which I thought was really interesting, how going to a play was, and we've talked about it too. It was a down and dirty, low class oh, yeah. form of entertainment, but we've elevated it to such a degree because it it had to stand in at some point there was a decision made it had to stand in for um england it had to stand in for for this colonial power mm-hmm. and and that never really left i don't know how shakespeare would feel about that today but i think that it, because he is frozen in time he is frozen as this you know um uh, kind of bureaucratic almost figure right and that's um it's an interesting place i think to find someone who if you study the works and if you read all the the puns and you and you look at the history i mean that's totally not what uh what shakespeare is at all yeah but yeah, no, it's, it's true. And that was actually my next point was to oh, okay. go into the high class marker, oh, good. you know, okay. like, and I think that is, 
um, again, it's it's shorthand not just for England, but for you know a certain level of education and stuff. Right. We, yeah. we talked about this. We for had sure. that whole episode where we devoted to talking about uh, high versus low culture and, yeah. and Shakespeare's influence and all that stuff. So go listen to that if you want a more detailed <laughs> uh, discussion. But um, it is it is a good point that that Shakespeare really does have a certain cachet. Um, that is also self-sustaining. There's 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 money and uh, prestige associated with knowing Shakespeare and talking about Shakespeare and producing yeah. Shakespeare and all those things, and those all kind of uh, wind up coming together. Have it be coward! So next, I wanted to get into a few of the uh, interesting examples I'd say from from the book. There, there's a couple that I didn't really want to talk about. Lindsay, you can bring them up if you want. But um, the first one that uh, I found just exhilarating and really interesting was this uh example of the birds they're starlings by the way yep. thank you Lindsay, uh for reminding me uh so in the 1890s uh it was a new york pharmaceutical manufacturer named eugene scheifelin that was a terrible butchering <laughs> uh, i'm not good at the german obviously uh he uh he wanted to bring every species of bird that Shakespeare mentioned in any of his works to North America. Uh, most of them just died. Uh, but these starlings that are mentioned in one play, I can't even remember the play right now. Uh, it was like a throwaway reference. Uh, I think maybe it was King Lear actually. Uh, he brought over a hundred of them and now there are 200 million of oh them. My expected. God. Yeah. They are mostly on the Eastern seaboard, uh, but they go all the way up to uh, the Arctic circle almost in Canada. Yeah all the way down to uh, Mexico and the Gulf Coast. So they they're like spread, an invasive species. They are super invasive. They have an amazing beak that allows them to hunt for insects far better than almost any other North American bird. Um, so they have a huge leg up and they've spread like wildfire. Oh my God. They, yeah, it's just, it was typical 19th century. Just I like this thing. Let's bring it to a new habitat and see what happens. And wow. devastation is what happened. Um, and it it is like you can go to New York and these birds are everywhere. Uh, they're yeah, they've killed off other species of birds and everything else. That's insane. All because Shakespeare mentioned them once yeah. in a play. And this guy was a big Shakespeare fan. So uh, so so Shakespeare's had a, an an ecological uh, yeah. impact that he could never have foreseen. Yeah. I mean, wow, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. That that was the one uh, reading this book that I was like, wow, this is an insane, insane thing that, that was real. Uh, Why would you off with that? Everything that you're going to talk about is going to pale in comparison to Starling. The other ones are, I'd say, a little more uh, maybe nuanced or they're they're not quite as, as obvious. This one is like direct. It's like, I like Shakespeare. I, these are a bird mentioned by Shakespeare. I'm going to bring them all over. And then chaos ensued. Like That's it was just, crazy. it's chaos theory at its, at its <laughs> most prime. I love it. Um, but the other ones are, are, are still interesting. I think they're maybe up for debate a little bit more. Uh, he, he talks a lot about how, uh, teenagers were kind of invented by Shakespeare. Yes. I think that's the one that I like the most. Yeah. You like that one. I, I did, do. I did not. Cause I, I think it's a bit of a stretch. First of all, He's, he only has the one example, obviously, because there's only one set of teenagers in Shakespeare. Yeah, but they're really. kind of important. They're kind of famous. You they're, may have heard you of You may them. have heard of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, <laughs> and it's true. I mean, he, to a certain extent, uh, he did lay down uh, groundwork of irrational creatures doing irrational things and killing themselves for young love, uh, which, you know, teenagers do dumb things like maybe that. Um but at the same time, it's not really clear that Romeo's a teenager. He might be a bit older. There's, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of wiggle room around uh, 
that. And I think it's interesting, Liz, you've mentioned this Trainer Romeo and Juliet episode. Your students now are like, that's dumb. Why do you do this? And it's true, but I think it's important that that you that you bring up the fact that these kids are kids. They're young. They're not I mean, Romeo's not a 40-year-old man. No. And so he's he's young enough that his brain hasn't fully developed. And I think that's the important thing is that the youth that they exhibit is is both um, what makes them attractive, but also what uh, causes their downfall is something they can't um, they can't get away from because it's just part of it. I mean, Juliet's 13. Romeo might be 16 or 17. Their brains have not fully developed yet. And Shakespeare seems to hone in on that. This is long before the boomer culture that uh, that really ushered in teenagers. Yeah. I mean, before that, teenagers did not exist. But the idea of there being this in between uh, phase, well, yeah. yeah, between being a child and being an adult, <laughs> and and having to make adult decisions like I'm going to be married tomorrow to someone that I don't love, and and to put those feelings and thoughts. Uh, front and center um, in a way that makes you feel really bad for them. I think that's, that's, I can't think of any, any other writer who was, they don't talk about kids. They don't talk about teenagers. They, they would never think about writing a story about a 13 year old girl. It's just not done until you get to the 20th century. So I think you have to give props to Shakespeare for at least partially ushering in the idea of, of, the the teenager yeah okay i'll i'll, I'll buy that yeah, thanks I, I feel like again and this is one of march's uh central points in his book is that shakespeare was just he didn't i i think he kind of contradicts himself because he says like oh shakespeare created the teenager but then throughout the book he's like shakespeare held up a mirror to what already existed i think teenagers have always sure. been teenagers absolutely and i think in his day and time shakespeare's day and time uh it would have been difficult for a 13 year old girl who's saying you're getting married next week yeah. to paris you know yeah and he's not even bringing helen with him like it's it's really not good that was a deep cut. that was that was a deep cut <laughs> uh but that's all that that was that reality was there i think he showed it and he showed it in a, in a fairly realistic way that these that these teenagers would not respond well to these kind of situations uh and that they are susceptible to making rash impulsive choices um but I don't think he invented that. I think he 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 may have helped. I think you're right. I think he was he was very kind of brave in a way of like, yeah, this is what this is what teenagers do in these kind of situations. You put them in a life or death situation, they're gonna make bad ones. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh and I think that was that's kind of revolutionary, the fact that he he codified it that way. But I don't think he created You're, you're thinking about the invention part a little bit. This is not like, you know, the internal combustion engine that just came out of nowhere. Of course, Shakespeare was holding up a mirror to the society in which he lived. And I think that it's it's the choice. It's like a photographer taking their camera and choosing to frame a certain shot. Um you could have 18 people take the same photograph and they're all going to look different. Shakespeare and all the other writers of the day were looking at the world around them and only one turned that mirror on that age group. And, And you're right, codified it. I think that inventing is, you're thinking about it in a very modern sense of the word it's not like he he pulled it out of thin air and made it again out of thin air a shakespearean yes phrase um he didn't invent it that way but he did 
codify it. Yeah. And that, I think, is remarkable. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Okay. I'll grant you that. I, I, I the other sorry, just one last point on teenagers, because it, it kind of bothered <laughs> me reading this reading this chapter was that um there was some odd stuff he says about teenagers in in the book. I think it was more just March trying to be like uh stylistic with his kind of approach and explaining the chapter. But I think our understanding of teenagers now is is a lot more nuanced. Um and I think that's again, it's why maybe your kids struggle to really connect with Romeo and How Juliet. How do you mean that way. it's nuanced? What do you mean? I think, well, the fact that we know their brains aren't finished developing. Like, yeah. I think that, like, we all kind of understand and we all have, I think, a bit more recognition because we all grew up in that in-between phase. Like, sure. and our parents were the first ones, like you're saying, boomers were the first group to really be like, okay, I'm in a teenager now. I'm going to do things differently. I'm listening to the Beatles, mom and dad. Okay. Like you can't stop me. I'm tie dyeing my clothes or whatever. Right. right. They they had a, a, a distinct phase of growth that was invented by Madison Avenue. Of course. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. There's no denying that. But at the same time, it, it wasn't, it, that doesn't make it not genuine. No, real. Course, it's right. not a real, it's a real experience for those, for those kids. And we are now the second generation, largely, uh, to have gone through that process. Third, maybe. Yeah, third. Yeah, sure, of course. Gen X can't forget about them, I guess. Yeah, but, they'll cry about and, it if you do. <laughs> and our three Gen X <laughs> listeners leave at this point. Uh, but but no, seriously, like it's it's like it's a relatively new phenomenon. But I think because we're now all aware of going through that phase in a way that previous generations never had the the ability to kind of reflect and say i'm in this phase now i'm going to remember it forever and i'm going to be a little lighter on future generations of teenagers uh i think that 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 just changes our interpretation compared to shakespeare's uh understanding of that age but again that's just me yeah that is just you because i still think yeah i mean okay we're gonna turn this part of the podcast into ancient bickerings no not apparently but i think first of all no generation takes it easy on the next generation okay which you just said they do but they don't i love gen z they're my favorite generation still, because we're millennials and we're gonna buck all the trends but i mean no that's not something that people did but i think the idea that it's nuanced yes because People at that time, you grew up when you hit puberty. Like a woman who who is menstruating is old enough to have a baby, therefore she is a woman. And that's just it, right? That's why we have all of these rituals surrounding, you know, uh, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs around the age of 12, 13, 14. When you get into any culture around the world, that's the age when these things start to happen. Um, Shakespeare is no different in that Juliet is 13 and getting married, but He's just questioning whether or not that is an okay thing to do. It seems, yeah, at least for that situation. Yeah, maybe he's not saying it's a blanket. Yeah, but yeah. but the fact remains that he gives us a fairly decently representative look at what goes on in the mind of a thirteen-year-old girl, and I think that in itself is is a remarkable feat for a man in his thirties or 40s to to be able to write that i mean maybe that in and of itself has just turned me into an anti-stratfordian because it's like that never happens i mean he had a he had a teenage daughter at that time sure that he hardly ever saw because he was spending all of his time at the brothels and bear baiting dens in in uh yeah it's more fun than raising a child honestly you know not that we know anything about that (laughs) not at all 
Can we talk about sex in Shakespeare? I know you, it's not on your list. Yeah, okay, sure. But I think that that was an important and, and interesting um that was my segue i was talking about broth yeah yeah, I, just, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. was, I was thinking about it i was yeah. i was aiming you were going there. Yeah, yeah good um because you know not that shakespeare invented sex either but again we hold him in <laughs> really <laughs> procreation was done differently in the tudor age um but we hold him up as this like frozen paragon of englishness and proper propriety um when really, I mean, the plays are littered with puns and innuendo. And um, I think that's something that really does get lost when we talk about it. We've mentioned this before, um, that the easiest way to get a, a new reader, especially a teenage reader, um, to look at Shakespeare is to talk about the body puns mm-hmm. and and the, the sexual jokes that are going on. Um, which again is Shakespeare holding up a mirror to the society in which he lives. And we, we need to remember that theater was not the theater as it is now. And this, as March mentions in his book, there were sex workers in and among the crowd performing sexual services for people in the higher paying seats if they wanted it. So, I mean, this is not a prudish person. This is not someone who's, you know, kind of doe-faced and pudgy like the Stratford Monument. This yeah. is not someone who is so prim and proper that he can't figure it out. Um, and I think that the the sexual morality that comes later that we have inherited because we are a pretty uptight group of people. Not, 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 no. I, not, not to the Victorians. Or no, well, okay, yeah, but I mean, we inherited a lot of shit from the Victorians, and yeah. I don't think we are as sexually free as some other generations that came long, long before us. Because we, we remember, like, we still believe that um, your sexual orientation defines who you are. The Victorians, sorry, not the Victorians, the Elizabethans didn't have that. So they didn't have a yeah. They didn't have a word for it. They didn't have and and so Shakespeare takes that idea of uh, sexual fluidity and attraction and just the the carnality of sex and puts it on all of his characters. They fall in love with each other all the time, and and they're doing it when they're men dressed as women dressed as men, and they're the the fluidity there is is really something very very cool. And I think that's something that um, maybe this is an anti-influence. Maybe I'm going the opposite direction. Maybe we need to be more like, is is my point. We need to be more like the the fluid nature of the Elizabethan stage, or at least the Shakespearean Elizabethan stage. Yeah, so you made your... You made my point for me. It's not an influence at all. It's just it's, something it's, that we can look at now and say, wow, he was different than those Victorians, which we all agree on. <laughs> Thanks, Linz. That's Fine. good. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So this week, uh, we wanted to have a bit less of a bickering for ancient bickerings. We got enough bickering in this we've, episode. Yeah, anyway, I, think, so I, think I think we've got a few snide comments in here and there. Uh, so this week, instead, we're asking each other, Lindsay, how has Shakespeare influenced you as a writer? Honestly, Aiden, I don't know that he has to the degree that that you may have expected me to say. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I think it's 
maybe in in the same way that my last example about sex was kind of an anti-influence as you put it or as i put it as we agreed it was yeah um it almost seems to me like um not that i'm trying to go the opposite direction of shakespeare but i certainly don't set out thinking about how i'm going to copy Shakespeare or emulate Shakespeare. I mean, I've tried my hand at writing sonnets and mm-hmm. I've I have written characters that I think are Shakespearean and certain situations that are Shakespearean. Yeah. But I think in my writing, I feel like sometimes it's Shakespeare can be a little bit put upon a person's writing when they try to match or they try to, you know, strive for Shakespearean, it feels forced. And I try for something much more naturalistic. So I don't think that. But that was Shakespeare. Well, for a time, but this is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about, (laughs) that, that Shakespeare as Shakespeare is codified today. It's not naturalistic. It's, it's so, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing. I think if, if Shakespeare is an influence at all, I, I certainly don't think about Shakespeare when I'm writing. I don't sit yeah, down okay, and yeah. think that, that's, that's I'm going way. to try and, and write a Shakespearean character. That's never crossed my mind okay. in any way, shape, or form. And I think when we talk about Shakespeare, like you said, he was writing naturalistically for the time, but we don't look at him this way. It takes a little bit more mental gymnastics to say um, – like you have to sit down and actually be uh, scholarly about it to be able to think about Shakespeare as a naturalistic writer because of how um, influential he he is yep. to this day and how we've lionized him and canonized him. He is high class. I do not write that way. Therefore, I don't think he is that that much of an influence on me okay i said that i'm sure you could read anything that i've written and you could say yep that's shakespeare yep that's shakespeare yeah, so well, i mean there's I mean, just an, it's an unconscious thing well and that and that's the distinction i guess is between consciously emulating shakespeare yeah. or thinking ah this is has a shakespearean whatever let's roll with it yeah versus like obviously we all borrow his phrases without even thinking about right. it uh for the words obviously again but uh, I think it's even more those those things that we've talked about throughout the whole episode that are that are just kind of under the surface and you know they're there, um, but you don't until you think about them you don't you don't kind of approach it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, things like how you write a teenager, maybe right. for for instance, like how you could maybe how you write a villain. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like how many. Like I, I've just recently written a thing where my villain goes on a nice monologue and I'm like, it's not Shakespearean English, but damn, if it's not a little Iago, it's a little Macbeth. It's a little Richard III looking at the camera, you know, yeah. letting out all his, his devious plans. Like there, there are certain elements of that, um, that I find you just, you can't escape from because it's just such a naturalistic, um, to us, it appears naturalistic, uh, to write things in a, that are in some way, shape, or form uh, influenced and connected to something that Shakespeare put down. In some way, yeah, again, whether it's a character, it's a style, it's a speech, it's a phrase, it's there's something in there that 
you realize, oh yeah, this this has a hint. Or you could, if you looked at your own stuff, say, oh yeah, this ties back to Hamlet. Or this is this is vaguely like Sonnet one fourteen. I don't know any of the fucking sonnets. I I never so remember that. Is that how you've been influenced by Shakespeare? Is I, that your long winded yeah. way of saying that? No, because I I was far more uh, upfront about it. I tried to write a Shakespearean play. You oh may yeah, remember. I remember that. Yeah, that yeah. was that was a failure, but that was but I you know it was fun to try. So when you say you tried to write a Shakespearean play, yes, I want to I want to know because <laughs> this was a long time ago. I'm old. I forget things. It's not long. Did ago. you? Well, it was like twelve or thirteen years it ago. It was ten, ten or twelve. Yeah, you're right. Um, God, that is old. Did you set out to write a five act play yes. in iambic pentameter? In iambic pentameter with a few, you know, uh, you know, non verse speaking. Uh, plebs thrown in there. Okay. Uh, and yeah, and it was a it was a resounding failure, is what you. Yeah, said? well, because I was 22 and I didn't know what I was doing. I don't right. think I'd do any better now, but I might. I don't know. Um, maybe and was it I just for the thrill of of trying? Like, no. You, did See, you just this is this? this is one of the things that it was based on. Uh, I was in Chinese history class because yeah. I was maybe getting a history minor, so I was in Chinese history class, and there was a. Uh, uh, page in my textbook that told the story of this princess who was married off to uh, a Turkish tribe that, you know, now are where in Mongolia, right? This is you, now it's language. ringing a bell. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and she was, you know, she was married off and then her, her family was killed by another Chinese kingdom that took over and eventually became, I think Northern Sway or something like that. Uh, and reading her story was like wow she's a shakespearean heroine like this is so you were gonna write her story i was writing gonna write her story in shakespearean english and i think i got to like act two i think i finished act two uh and then i just lost all momentum because i was like what what the hell am i doing this for and it's it wasn't great but some of it was some of it was really interesting though some of it was really fun i have also written sonnets same as you Lindsay. we've all had to do it for class and what have you i make Um, my students write it exactly it's it's a fun it's a fun exercise right and that's if nothing else it's you can challenge yourself that way and i think that's what me writing the play was was like but again i think the the larger thing of how shakespeare's influenced me is to uh be able to point at various things that i've written and say oh yeah there's a hint of that here there's a hint of this there's a tiny connection i used a phrase that is like oh yeah that's that's obviously something that uh laertes was gonna was gonna say or something like that right there's just all of that that i think that's that's personally how i view it uh i think that's actually a good summary of my whole take on this whole episode actually but interesting you, you think it's stupid no i i just it it seems um snobbish which is weird because that's antithetical to everything that we've been talking about to say, I look through my writing and I look for Shakespearean. I, I don't look for it. Okay. I find it anyways, is my point. Anyway. It's not, it's not common. It's not all the time, but every now and then I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. I think there are very few people who can say that they are tremendously influenced by Shakespeare yeah. on a. Like, oh yeah. An, well, I mean, it's just not a, like Ian Desher who writes. Yes, exactly. That was where I was going. In yeah. or you know yeah. i mean that is that's a very rare type of person yeah. but i i think your point is well made that i mean the point of this whole episode we're all all of us who write and converse in the english language are all influenced by shakespeare um whether we think about it or even whether we know about it or not is a separate question altogether but the fact remains that you can't go far in the English language without encountering Shakespeare. Yeah. And that's something that is 
um, unparalleled across this wildly amazing depth of our language. That was a terrible sentence. <laughs> that was not nine since I'm gonna maybe. No, it definitely wasn't. Parting such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. What's next on our list, Aiden? Next up, we have the big boy, Hamlet. The big boy in his the big, big boy, boy pants. Yep, big D O I. The big boy, Hamlet. Yeah. Um, after that, relatedly, uh, Shakespeare and mental health. Oh, interesting. What's her name? Ophelia always yeah, comes up. Poor Ophelia. Uh, Hamlet also mental yes. health issues potentially. That was a, a thing you didn't bring up in this in this episode was uh, talking about the uh, Freud's connection to yeah. Shakespeare and, and psychoanalysis yeah. and uh, Hamlet's introspection. Um, maybe Oedipal well, complex yeah. potentially. Like he was some of that. Know, some of that does seem psychologically important. So I think that. We're going to, if not in our Hamlet episode, but in, in our episode on mental health, I think that'll be something that we're going to have to bring up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that'll be an interesting way to finish off this dumpster fire of a year, 2020, mm-hmm. and uh, and head into 2021 with um, a clean slate and aligned chakras. Is that is that something mental health, you know, is, am I taking this metaphor too far? I, there's a metaphor there? There was. Did what? you not see? Okay. <laughs> I guess not. The dumpster fire? I'm confused. No, like the mental health thing and like aligning your chakras. And it's not a metaphor. That's just that's well, it was it was kind of a metaphor. Kind of, do we need to go back to English 101? What a Shut metaphor up. Is? Love you. No, it is a metaphor. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.